1: Welcome to the
2: 14th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford, and today we have an interview with Brett Battles, thriller and suspense writer and author of the new book, Shadow of Betrayal in Hardback Now from Delacorte Press. This interview was recorded live at Thriller Fest in New York City in July. This is Lee Child, and I'm listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Today I'm at Thriller Fest in New York City, speaking with Brett Battles, author of The Cleaner, The Deceived, and the brand new novel, Shadow Betrayal, that has just been published by Delacorte Press. Welcome to the Reading and Writing Podcast, Brett. Well, thank you for having me. Good. Good. Um, your books feature Jonathan Quinn, a professional cleaner. Can you explain to the listeners exactly what a cleaner is? Because we're not talking about a house cleaner here. No, no, it's not. <laughs> no, I mean, he's a janitor of a different sort,
3: if you will. He uh, Quinn is um, a guy who comes in and uh, gets rid of the bodies and makes them disappear, so no one will ever find them again. He's not the one who who, who actually creates the bodies, and, but he's the one who, who Takes them out right. and 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 loses them <laughs> per se. Uh, all those, you know, occasionally he'll have to create the bodies, but that's unintentional. Sure. In, in sure. the most part.
2: I'm um, I'm curious in your research for um, the series or for mm-hmm. the first book. Mm-hmm. Is this actually um, uh, kind of a, a job that's out there, or is this something that you? Uh, I well, it, I mean,
3: th- I, there are some uh, literary uh, references uh, of of the job um you know well actually more film in, in if you will like um, Harvey Keitel in pulp, pulp fiction right. Jean Renault in uh, La Femme Nikita right um, uh, so it's not it's not necessarily a new idea and i got to believe that these people exist but sure. uh, Do I know for sure? Eh, Probably best not to
2: say. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, I wonder if you could give us a a brief synopsis or glimpse of Shadow of Betrayal, your latest novel. Sure. Um, Shadow of Betrayal
3: uh, is a story. um, uh, Well, okay. the story centers around uh, the fact that Quinn had previously promised uh, his um, uh... biggest client that he would do three jobs for him without asking any questions if the client would help him with some personal matters that happened in the past well now is the time that the client is is calling those three jobs um, in and so quinn uh... has to do these jobs um, uh, which seem to spiral a little bit more and more and start to unlayer a conspiracy <laughs> Um, that is uh, threatening not just the U.S. government, but several governments um, uh, and the stability of of basically the world's um, security um, in in the end. And and he is forced to, if he doesn't do something about it, nobody will be able to do anything about it.
2: Sure. And that's in bookstores now, right? It It is in bookstores
3: now. It came out on on the uh, 8th. Tuesday, whatever okay. Tuesday yeah, was. July.
2: Yes. <laughs> in an earlier inter- interview that I read with you, you mm-hmm. mentioned your love of reading the Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators oh, series when you were a kid. I, <laughs> kid. I love that. <laughs> I love Jupiter
3: Jones and Pete and all the. I, I, they had the they had the place in the in the junkyard and they created the tunnels that they got to go through. I just love that stuff. That was
2: great. Sure. I, I was wondering if you. I mean, you already did it to yeah. a, to a, an extent. I wondered if you could you know describe it for someone who may be listening who hasn't read that right. Robert Hitchcock and the three investigators well
3: it's been a long time since <laughs> I've read them so you know chances are if I read them again I go this is what, what was I thinking but not maybe not maybe, I'm sure they're not lot the of fun. only person
2: who read and loved them yeah I, I they were them. fantastic
3: yeah. it was uh, it was these three um, kids I think they were young teenagers probably 13 14 I, I can't remember exactly their age one of them's uncle I think it was Jupiter Jones uncle owned a I think it was the uncle, who owned a, 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 junkyard. a junkyard. And um, they formed a, they built a clubhouse out in the middle and you had to go through all these tunnels through the junk to get to the clubhouse. And um, Jupiter, I think it was, again, I think it, he was the one who fancied himself an investigator and being able to figure things out, kind of a modern day Sherlock Holmes in a way. Right. And then his two friends, one's name was Pete, I believe, and the other, I can't remember what mm-hmm. the other guy's yeah, name I was. Think, yeah. um, were along to help him. And uh, somehow along the way, in, in, the, in the first book, they meet Alfred Hitchcock, who kind of becomes their their advisor. Um, but he always makes like one or two appearances per book. And it's sure. just very short things. It's almost like his appearances in his films. In right. way. <laughs> um, and it's my understanding, actually, the books came out later after Hitchcock died, they re-released them, but they they just as three investigators, and they took Alfred Hitchcock out. I don't know if that's true, but I've heard that, that that's the case. Yeah, I, I, kind of
2: I, I, I think there were some, like, uh, it, it was a weird story because yeah. I, I researched it online one time, yeah. and, and it turned out that, um, a lot of them were ghost written, not, oh. not by the original uh, writer. Right. And then also, I, I know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that there was like a, a an updated version right. sometime in the the 80s, maybe late 80s, Sorry. early 90s, which yeah, I never I looked at so. those. Well, I think
3: I think uh, uh, Gail Lynn's late husband was one of the ghost right, writers on right, that. Exactly. And um, uh, I, and which is perfectly um, believable because I, I believe you know the Hardy Boys all have the same. Author oh, yeah, on it, yeah. and they're all ghost written. Yeah. You know, and same with Nancy Drew, all that. Exactly. It's just you know having a consistent uh, author name on there, but it has nothing to do with who actually who wrote them. But, right, but yeah.
2: So, so you you were reading that? Was no. that it? Was was that any kind of indication? I mean, have you always read kind of mystery or suspense? I have. I have. I I, I mean, I I think I split my time um,
3: as a kid and into my teenage years between. Mystery, and suspense, and science fiction. Sure, um, I, you know, as a boy, you're always getting into science fiction. My dad was huge. My dad's still huge into science fiction, <laughs> so um, you know, he got me started on that. Um, but, uh, but they're definitely with the suspense. You know, I read the uh, the three investigators when I was younger, and then as I started getting a little older, the Alistair MacLean books. You know, like Ice Station Zebra, Guns of Navarone, right, right. Uh, where eagles dare or something like that um uh there, there's a whole mess of them i remember reading i just i just devoured those books yeah. and they were, they were great and then and then that led me on to um uh the eagle has landed with jack higgins and then and then black sunday you know right. which was just awesome <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and and from there um uh, when i uh, probably around the time i was 21 22 someone introduced me to an author named Robert Ludlum Mm -hmm. and who we all know right and um, I mean not personally because you know he's not around to know anymore and I just don't know him Uh, but I um, I just read everything at that time that he read and wrote and every time Mm -hmm. a new book would come out I would I would read the the new Robert, Robert Ludlum, and then sure. you know when Bourne came out, it was like, oh my God, this is great! Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, I just, I just remember all that. I, although you know, to a certain extent, a lot of Ludlum stories not all of them but a lot of them were the same story sure, uh, sure. just different characters set in different countries right, and, right. um but but they were fun they were really yeah. a lot of fun i remember that so yeah exactly yeah. they're
2: still amazing the first yeah. time you read them yeah. it's,
3: it's just just a ton, ton of fun
2: yeah and so yeah, so that
3: that kind of uh, you know got me into the whole thing
2: sure so so at that point were you actually uh, um, uh, at that point thinking about writing or even trying to write well, i've been or? i have believe it or not I have
3: um, told everyone that I was going to be a, uh, an author since I was probably about 11 years old and that was always what I was going to be, I mean what I told people. Sure. Now I kind of got sidetracked for many years <laughs> in the adult, in adult years but it was always something that that was there and I, I would always, I'd go through you know, months or a couple of years sometimes where I really wouldn't write much of anything. Right. But then I I get into a f- fever and I'd start writing again mm-hmm. and, and everything and uh, and I finally just sat down and really just started doing it and uh, just every second that I could right. and because I said you know I, I this is what I really want I've got it right. if I don't do it it's not going to happen mm-hmm. and so it finally happened
2: and and so was the cleaner was that actually the first book you had ever written or no you written? no it, it
3: was it was actually as far well. I had probably by that point had started 50 different books. Wow. Um, maybe half a half dozen of them made, them made it to 100, 150 right, pages. Right. I had actually finished two books, mm-hmm. completed books before I wrote The Cleaner. Um, two books which will never see the light of day. Right. Um, I consider them my training books. Sure, sure. Um, and actually, before I even sold The Cleaner, uh, while it was out, and it took a while for it to sell, but while it was out, I wrote another book. So there, I wrote a fourth book, which I have never actually sent out, right, since Because right. I, then I then I sold the cleaner, and I just got um, you know pulled into the whole Quinn world, sure. and that's kind of where I've been ever since
2: then. Sure, and and if I'm not mistaken, you have kind of an interesting path to to publication <laughs> with with yes. uh, with Delacorte. So uh, yeah, I wonder I if, if you could kind I of did. talk about that. What, what was that sure. process? Like? it was. Uh,
3: There was at times exhilarating and at times completely depressing. (laughs) And at times I thought I was uh, that nothing was going to happen. And um, uh, you know, I I never gave up on the whole idea of writing. But I was, I did many times get to the point where I thought this was not going to be the book that was going to do it for me. Right. Um, What happened was, uh, in a nutshell, um, I tried querying agents and everything like most writers do. I don't know, I must have queried 60, 70 agents you know mm-hmm. just blanketing everything out there and um, I just I just wasn't getting the response. Very few if any look asked to look at any of the uh, of the book and perhaps my query letter was bad. I don't know now looking back on it, it must have been bad I don't know. but um, I was about ready to give it up and then a friend of mine um, Suggested that I send the book to this small publisher in uh, Los Angeles uh, that he was happened to be being uh, published with at the time, and the, the publisher is uh, uh, Ugly Town, and, mm-hmm. uh, and the friend was Nathan Walpaw who's uh, who writes some great books, but he's you know, it's very uh, not, not a lot of people have read him, unfortunately, but he's right. very funny, very great books. But uh, I took Nathan's advice, and I sent uh, the. Um, manuscript to to the guys at Uglytown it's basically run by two two guys in Los Angeles and that was in like early February and I didn't hear anything until well I didn't hear anything through the spring through the summer and I finally said okay you know what I gotta write something else and so I start writing this fourth book that I talk about right. that I talked about and I'm writing writing and then finally in November I get this Email—it's kind of like a, uh, almost like a group email—but it's it says something like, um, "Hi, um, we know you've all submitted work to us when we haven't been able to get back to you, but we we just want to let you know we'll get back to you within a month." And I'm sitting there going, "Okay, that's that's nice, but probably doesn't mean anything." So I keep working on my book. That month passes, nothing happens. We're into January. I'm actually at a Starbucks doing edits because I had finished the fourth book, and now I'm 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 right. re- doing some revisions and stuff. And I get a phone call from Jim Pasco at Ugly Town, uh, and he proceeds to tell me that they want to buy my book. And I'm just like, you know, I'm like on cloud nine. You know, it's a small <laughs> publisher. You know, it's not, uh, it's not really any kind of lucrative contract or right, anything. But right. I'm getting my foot in the door at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm I'm just like. Happy to be in the game. Um, he tells me at that time this is January, he tells me at that time they want to bring me out in October so they want to fast track it through and bring it out in October. I say great, that sounds wonderful to me. Uh, let's roll. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. So things were going along and making revisions and everything like that and then come middle of that summer, they stop I uh, stop answering my phone calls and my emails for about a week, week and a half. And I, I'm starting to think, oh, God, something's up, you know. And sure enough, they give, finally give me a call and they say, look, we have had some financial setbacks due to uh, a distributor who had gone bankrupt and right. a couple of other things, and we are going to have to cease operations, maybe for just a little while, maybe, we don't know. And I'm like, Oh, oh, my God, I'm back to square one. They said, well, don't think that we're going to, we'd like to bring your book out, but we might be the spring, but we're not really sure. And, you know, it's, I, I got a sense that it was maybe 10% possibility. Right. So I'm thinking it's nothing's going to happen, and I'm going to have to go back to the drawing board. But uh, they did a really cool thing. Um, they had an editor friend at Banham Dell, which is Delacorte Bantam Dell, right. mm-hmm. um, who had bought uh, mass paperback rights from them from some of their other books. And they sent her my manuscript. And uh, long story short, she ended up buying my contract from Uglytown and then giving me a three-book deal. And all of a sudden, I went from like this really small to this big public. It's like going, I always the, say, it's like... That's a story that never happens. Right, it never happens. <laughs> it, and I, I, it's like going from the, the, like a single-A baseball farm sure. team to the Yankees, wow. you know. And, and I did it all without an agent, too uh which was both good and bad you know sure um, do you have an
2: agent now? i do have yeah. an agent now,
3: yeah I, I got one within a few months <laughs> after right, that right. happening uh, although i wish i had had one at the time uh. but. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all right it all yeah. worked out it all worked out and they've been great bantamdell has been Incredible! Yeah. That's great. Yeah, that's very great. happy with him.
2: So um, I'm curious during this whole process of, mm-hmm. of you know the years that you were writing in spurts and then would work on other novels, what what were you doing? Kind of your day job? I'd read ah. that you worked in the entertainment I industry. I did work. For, I, I worked for about
3: twenty years, uh, maybe even just a little. No, I think it ended up being just about twenty years. i worked in. Uh, Uh, television, specifically in the motion graphics uh, end of television, which hmm. is um, the, the people who make um, main titles for TV shows, oh, okay. who make all the graphics that go on the promos that when you, when you see a, a, a promo for a show. Um, let's say it's uh, burn notice, sure. and they at the beginning of burn notice, you know, you'll have the logo down there in the corner and everything. That's the graphics. At the end, you have this page that comes up and it says what time and right. when what days the show's on. That's all the graphics. That's all graphic stuff. Right? There's right. A graphic on every networks. There's always graphics going, and <laughs> people don't even see them. You know, don't even realize it. But there, there's tons of that stuff, and so that I just kind of fell into that, um, and. Uh, I, I, I wasn't one of the people who actually made the stuff. I was the producer, so I was like the project manager. And uh, my it, it, by the end, um, uh, before I was able to finally quit and write full time, I was uh, uh, an executive producer at E Entertainment, uh, okay. doing doing graphics for uh, uh, the for E channel and for Style Channel, uh, Style Network. Sorry, Style so Network. They'd kill me if I said Style Channel. <laughs> oh, but I don't work for them anymore. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Great. So um, believe it or not, there was actually a time in the 1990s following the demise of the Cold War when some people declared that espionage books or or international thrillers were were going to become relics. I've heard that. I've heard that. But unfortunately... The, uh, the realities of today's politics and okay. global conflicts offer lots of rich material right. for, for international thrillers. And I was just curious, um, when you start thinking about a new book, where, where do you, you know, get some of your ideas? Right. What, what do you look to for, I, for inspiration?
3: Right. I, you know, I, I, I think I'm both um, passive and active in, in, in my inspiration. Um, you know, passively, I'm just taking in everything that's happening around me in in life on if I see read something in the news just on st- or on chance you know or just see mm-hmm. something without actually meaning to see something sure and then sometimes I'm actually leafing through stuff just to get some ideas and stuff like that but really mainly for me what happens I I I, I always start out with like a scene or a situation um, for instance um, in the deceived my second book which just came out in paperback Um, I started off with the idea of what if Quinn gets hired for a job um, in Los Angeles where he lives, and he doesn't, he seldom does work at home, but he gets hired for a job in Los Angeles that there's a body has arrived at the port in a a container and they want him to get rid of it. But what if he goes to to get rid of that body and when he opens the container and, and starts to pull the body out, he realizes that it's a body of a friend of his. Hmm. what happens then and so so i i have that 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 situation that's set up right uh not really sure where it's all going to go at that point but um uh, I use that uh, uh, to, to, to just kind of as my jumping off point.
2: Right. Yeah. And, and that kind of leads me into my next question in terms of like what the writing process mm-hmm. is like for you. Once you have that kind of jumping mm-hmm. off point, do you sit down at, at some point and actually work on a, uh, an outline or do you just kind of um, outline as you mm-hmm. go and, and kind of see where it takes you? If, if, I, if, if, <laughs>
3: if I had my choice, I would never outline. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, because contractually, I have to give sure. um, Van Dell a synopsis, and I usually give them like 20-30 pages uh, that of the beginning of the book, so that they feel like, okay, I like the idea of where this is going. And quite honestly, more times than not, the story I end up writing has nothing to well has little, not nothing, but it has little to do with the synopsis I gave, right. and the pages that I wrote. Chances are. I'm not even using them. <laughs> I, I know that happened with Shadow of Betrayal, for instance. I sure. actually, I, I thought I was going to use them. I wrote fifty or thirty. I think I wrote thirty pages, uh, and uh, I thought that I was going to use them. But when I finally sat down to actually start the book, I went, "No, this isn't right. This isn't how the book should start." And it took on a whole different flavor, <laughs> and, and I just used, I did something completely different than what I had uh, how I had started before. The basis of the story was still there but there was a whole other part of the story that I had never even mentioned before that um, worked out great, you know, so.
2: Great. Yeah. Um, I was curious, uh, who are some of the writers that you, that inspire you and that you read for enjoyment oh. and inspiration? No.
3: Uh, well, I, I, I have a, you know, it's always a changing list, of course, sure. and everything. Sure. Um, uh, you know, my perennial favorites, you know, I, I love Graham Greene, mm-hmm. and, um, um, I, I, I'm a big uh, Haruki Murakami fan. Um, I don't always understand what he's writing. <laughs> not because he writes in Japanese, I read the English translation. Right. But because I'm not really sure what his message is, but it's just incredible. It, it, he evokes invo- these images that are just mind blowing to me sometimes. Um, I have a couple of uh, contemporary people that uh, I know, well, Murakami's still contemporary. He's sure, still writing. Sure. But, um, uh, I'm a big fan of Tim Hallinan, mm-hmm. who's uh, who's actually here at Thrillerfest. Right. Um, uh, he writes these incredibly beautiful stories, thrillers set in Bangkok, mm-hmm. and and he's he's got a, this literary style that is just kind of pulls me in, and I just it's, I find it very hard to stop reading. Um, his, he's got a new one coming out next month that I, I, I luckily got an advanced copy, and it was so good, it's really great. That's great. Um, uh, who, who else? Um, um, you know, I, I have some friends that I read who, because not because they're my friends, because I enjoy their work. Robert right. Gregory Brown, for instance, is somebody mm-hmm. who I read. Uh, Bill Cameron is somebody who sure. I read. Um And just the list goes on and on. And the list goes on and on. I don't read as much as I used to, though. And now that I'm writing, I'm reading less than I did when I wasn't writing full time.
2: So <laughs> that's unfortunate.
3: Yeah, it is. It's just. <laughs>
2: You know, you're reading yeah, a lot yeah. all day while you're on Yeah, a pen, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, there's been a lot of discussion um, in uh, the business media, especially about the, the rise of the Kindle. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Sony has their reader, and right. there's been discussions that they're probably going to. Um, soon, bring out one that has the wireless capability that, that the Kindle has. Right. Um, and with the rise of ebooks, I'm just wondering, is that something that you that you think about in, oh, terms, yeah. of, in terms of the impact on absolutely? Book how, how can we how can we not
3: think about it? I mean, sure. it's the future. Mm-hmm. I, bring it on, as far as I'm concerned, because it's 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 the way things are going to. I mean, it's you know, I don't I don't think the printed book is ever going to go away. Sure. But I think it, more and more. Uh, the uh, the the amount of printed books sold is going to start coming down, and the amount of e sold is going to start going up, and there there's going to reach a point of equilibrium. And I, I think at some point, you know, ten, fifteen years from now, the or maybe sooner, you never know, because mm-hmm. music just went completely yeah. changed. Um, uh, I think they're going to flip. I think more people will do the ebooks than they they'll do the the hardcover, sure, or, sure. or even the paperbacks, um, just because it's easier. And
2: I, you know,
3: it's new in technology, We
2: just should embrace
3: it and, and go with it. As far right. as I'm
2: concerned. And and what impact do you think that'll have in terms of in terms of book publishing? Well, um, it, I think it's going it, I'm, it, I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, I I, I, I don't I'm not. Okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say I'm I'm not sure. Unfortunately, that a lot of publishers are prepared for, especially in terms of the price point. Right. Um, because that's what happened with with um, with the music business. Mm-hmm. They were still selling CDs for seventeen or eighteen dollars, mm-hmm. and suddenly people came along and started associating a CD with you know eight digital files on it, and right. would and would rip it onto their um, computer. And I think that when people associate downloading a book as downloading a file, mm-hmm. that it's going to be difficult to get that twenty five dollar hardback. Oh,
3: back. I think so too. I think I think you're looking more at. At uh, mass paperback prices than you are at at, at hardcover, it's fine. Mm -hmm. The chances are you're going to sell more too, right? You know, so uh, which is fine. You know, and even if you price them even lower, if you price them five bucks each, Mm -hmm. you're going to get a lot more impulse buys. Sure, and which is fine. Uh, Although you know, you really want everybody to read everything that you're uh, (laughs) that they're downloading, (laughs) but you know, uh, it's just the way it's going. I think uh, publishers. Are kind of scrambling to try to figure out what's going on. Uh, I hope they're making the right moves. I know there has been a lot of consolidation in the last uh, six months. Within, <laughs> I mean, even at Bannam Dell, there, a lot of things have changed and consolidated there, sure. trying to get leaner and meaner. And, right. and so, I'm hoping that that they see this. I think they do. I know some people there do.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and we, you know, we also have the model of what happened to the, to the music industry sure. uh, of what not to do. So let's hope we don't make that mistake. You know? sure. But if not, I think um, as, a, as the artist, as the writer, um, we are less... I mean, as long as we're willing to roll with it and, and be willing to try new things and everything, I think we are in a less susceptible position than the, the publishers themselves.
2: Right, you know? right. So. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's unfortunate for publishers. Because right. I think eventually, personally, I think that at some point, and it may not be a year, it may not be five years, but at some point we're going to open up the New York Times, and someone on the level of Stephen King mm-hmm. or Dean Koontz is going to call their publisher and say, "I just signed a deal with Jeff Bezos, right, to bring oh, right. out my next book." I don't, see, I, I don't see anything wrong with that. I, yeah. I, I, I see the potential of, of um,
3: um, authors maybe getting together in a co-op kind of situation and hiring editors and PR people to work for them. Sure, you know, and in effect becoming their own publishing company. Uh, But I I do think kind of United Artists, right? I exactly like United (laughs) Artists. I do think though the thing that that publishers can jump on and 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 have the advantage and take advantage of of this is the fact that they do have the editing uh, expertise without a doubt, and and the PR and all that this stuff they can they can um, if they if they if that's what they're packaging because. You know, we're nothing without our without our editors. And, oh, absolutely. And, there, and, there has to be a gatekeeper. Right, exactly. Because all you have and, to
2: do is, unfortunately, right. go to iUniverse. And right. Exactly. You have to have gatekeepers. Exactly. And, you, and you'll have a lot of books up on the
3: um, electronic. Uh, uh, I mean, up on like uh, Kindle or whatever that are self-published. That uh, I mean, some of them are probably really good, but some of them are probably ha- would would need some editing. Would be a big help. And, exactly. And if 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 you have uh, the uh, The editor to help you out. That's, I mean, that's, you know, the 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 publishers can push that and then create a brand that way. See, so you know, quality is coming because this one has been edited and it's been, uh, you know, it's had the watchdog, it's got PR behind it, it's all this other stuff. So exactly, yeah.
2: Um, given all of your experiences that we've talked about in terms of your path to publication right. and all the writing that you did prior to selling mm-hmm. your first book, I wonder what kind of advice you would give to aspiring writers as they're sitting there trying right. to sell their first book or, or write right. their first book. All right. Well, first of all, write it. Finish it. <laughs> um, and then
3: um, start the next one. Uh, even as you're sending the queries out, Start the next one. And don't expect the first one to be the one that sells. You know, um, great baseball players, even the best baseball players, even the ones that would. Dave Winfield, for instance, in baseball, went from high school straight into the major leagues, I believe, which is is amazing. Mm -hmm. But he did play baseball before he got into the major leagues. He practiced for years, even through high school, you know, he, he the first time he got on the field was not the first time he played the game. Sure. sure. So, don't if your first book doesn't make it, it's not uh, it's not the a disaster. It's you're learning. These books are are, are training grounds. These are sure. you, it, it is an incredibly useful tool. You know, it's I, if I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the books that I wrote that I, that will never see the day, uh, light of day because right. they are the foundation on which I. Improve my craft and always know that your craft can improve no matter how good you are. We're, your, your craft can always improve. I'm constantly trying to, to improve it. I'm, I'm sure Stephen King is constantly trying to improve sure. his craft. It's, it's just, it's, okay. you, it, you're never going to be perfect. You just have to, and, and if you realize that and you work at it uh, then it's going to be all the much better. You can't go in with the attitude that my stuff is great and um, you should, you know, you should buy my stuff and take it right away because this is the best thing ever written because that's not going to get you anywhere. And that attitude is going to soon be evident to any publisher that's trying to buy your stuff, perhaps, and they're not going to want to help you out if they, you know, if, if they find that out, Sure. you know.
2: Okay, so as we wrap up, I just wanted to remind everyone that your new book is in Hardback, Shadow of Betrayal. It's mm-hmm. in bookstores now. Yeah. And also your second book is in Mass Market, uh, The Deceived, and that's right. in bookstores now as right. well. just and, came out. Right. And the first book's still out there. And I think. the Yeah, yeah the, the Cleaner is still, yeah. still out there. And so if someone is interested in finding out more, where, they, where can they find you online?
3: Well, I, I'm at uh, www. www.brettbattles.com. Uh, Very easy, Brett with two Ts, so um, I'm right there. Plenty of information right there. Great,
2: and and I'll add a link to the the show notes as well. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my latest interview. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to leave me some feedback about the podcast, you can leave a voicemail on my Google voicemail line and I can feature your comment in a future podcast. You can simply call 413-84-BOOKS, that's 413-84-BOOKS or it's 413-842-6657, again that's 413-842-6657. Also if you enjoyed listening to the podcast I would love to get a review in iTunes so that more people could find the podcast in the iTunes store. It's very simple. Go to the podcast in the iTunes store and just leave a review or a comment. Thanks a lot, and we'll be back soon with another interview with a writer that you enjoy reading. This is Kevin J. Anderson, and whenever
1: I'm not reading or writing, I enjoy listening to the Reading and Writing podcast.